I'm reporting what I'm going through uh, day by day. We haven't slept for the past three or four days, except for a few interrupted hours. Um, it is hard, actually, because I'm at the same time, I'm fearing for my life and for my family's life. I'm also reporting the, the stories of other victims who I might be one of them in the upcoming hours. So I'm not sure if I'm going to survive or, or if I'm going to make it for another day. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. For the past week, the Palestinian territory of the Gaza Strip has been under intense aerial bombardment. Last Sunday was the deadliest day in the conflict so far. Two Israeli airstrikes in Gaza killed at least 43 Palestinians, including eight children. On the same day, more than 100 rockets were fired from Gaza towards Israel. Today, world editor for the Saturday paper, Jonathan Perlman on why the violence in Israel and Palestine is at its worst point in years. Jonathan, in the past week, we've seen the biggest Israeli offensive into Gaza since the 2014 war. How did we get to this point? Yeah, so there's... So many points that you could start to answer this question. It is a conflict and a region with a a very long contested history. But I think the place to start really is what's been happening in Shag Jarrah, a small neighbourhood in Jerusalem in in, in the past few weeks. So Shag Jarrah is a neighbourhood in East Jerusalem which was captured by Israel in 1967. That was the Six-Day War. And since then, Israel has occupied the city. The international community sees that occupation as illegal. This is a very small neighbourhood close to the Old City, close to the Damascus Gate in Old City, where there's been tensions for decades, really, about efforts by Jewish settlers and far-right groups to evict some Palestinians who've been living there, most of them since the 1950s. And it's been a long-running case, but it was all coming to a head last Monday when the Supreme Court was expected to issue orders, most likely to order the eviction of a number of Palestinian families there. And this is a really significant issue and and cause of tension because it goes beyond just a number of households in this tiny suburb in East Jerusalem. For the Palestinians, I think it, it evokes memories of the houses and villages that many of them were forced to leave behind, you know, particularly after the 1948 war. So that was the immediate trigger, was that there were tensions about this court case. But there's been growing tensions for some time in Jerusalem. And in response to the planned evictions of the Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, Palestinians have been protesting in the area. So that's one catalyst for the protests. But can you tell me more about these other tensions? So 
there's been a lot of tensions in Jerusalem in recent weeks, particularly since the start of Ramadan in mid-April, because Israeli police ordered a number of sort of operations around the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Hundreds of Palestinian protesters were injured over the weekend in clashes with Israeli police in the area around the Al-Aqsa Mosque, a frequent flashpoint in recent weeks. There was a big incident on Friday, May 7, where police fired stun grenades and rubber bullets at Palestinians who were throwing stones. And then on Monday, which was the day that the Supreme Court was uh, about to hand out its Sheikh Jarrah decision, there was going to be this march that uh, Israeli nationalists were planning to hold to celebrate what they call Jerusalem Day, which marks the capture in 1967 of East Jerusalem and the Old City. So all of this really combined to create an incredibly tense situation and it came to a head last Monday morning when police ordered another raid on the Al-Aqsa compound. In the end, Israeli police shot, again, stun grenades, rubber bullets at Palestinians and about 500 Palestinians were injured, a number of police were injured. And those scenes, you know, really capped off what we'd seen since the start of Ramadan, of this really tense confrontation at the the heart of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so what happened next? So at 5pm on the Monday, Hamas, the Islamist militant group that controls Gaza, warned Israel that it was giving an hour for Israeli forces to withdraw from the Al-Aqsa Mosque and also from Sheikh Jarrah. And just a few minutes after that deadline expired, Hamas fired rockets into Israel and Israel then launched its own series of airstrikes. In the space of just a day, a major escalation that few had expected. Israel's carried out airstrikes on Gaza hours after rockets were fired from the territory towards Jerusalem. Airstrikes and and missile launches killing at least 53 people in Gaza and at least seven in Israel. And Jonathan, since then, we've seen these rocket attacks and the bombardment of Gaza continue and and worsen. So tell me what things are like on the ground now. Well, they're, they're terrible, really. I spoke to numerous victims and families who have been bombed, and all of them actually told me that they haven't been warned before their houses or homes uh, were bombed. Uh, this is Mahal Husseini. Uh, I'm um, a human rights activist and also a journalist in the Gaza Strip. I'm now uh, at home in the west of Gaza, in Tel El Hawa Street uh, or neighborhood, where most of the shelling was actually last night. Israel is conducting airstrikes in Gaza, which is a densely populated corner at the sort of southern end of Israel. And Israel says it's attacking Hamas militants and targets in order to stop Hamas 
firing rockets. But the Israeli airstrikes um, inevitably in an area where it's mainly apartment buildings, densely populated residential areas. Uh, Also, the Israeli media, by the way, reported that more than 200 uh, Israeli warplanes were bombing different districts of the Gaza Strip only last night. So you can imagine 200 warplanes are bombing an area of 356 kilometers with 2 million residents in one of the most densely populated on Earth. So uh, It's hit one of the main roads leading to the main hospital in Gaza, Shifa Hospital. Israel has uh, destroyed a high-rise building in Gaza that housed media outlets, including the Associated Press and Al Jazeera. Uh, We are actually being uh, silenced uh, in the Gaza Strip, uh, whether journalists who have been uh, getting targeted since the beginning of this attack and also the news agencies, including international and local uh, news agencies who, ha- who have been targeted. So, yeah, uh, it, it is difficult to, to, to keep reporting under these conditions that we are trying as much as we can to continue. Meanwhile, the death toll has just continued to rise. A lot of civilians and a lot of children Hamas is firing uh, rockets across Israel and as of Monday, the violence is continuing. 192 Palestinian people have been killed, including 58 children, and 10 Israeli people have been killed, including two children. I have spoken yesterday to that uh, one resident of a sheltered refugee camp in the west, uh, northwest of Gaza. Uh, his name is Mohammed al-Hadidi. Uh, Mohammed lost uh, three of his children in an Israeli airstrike and, uh, and also his wife. His fourth children is still missing under the rubble. And his fifth children, the only one left, um, has survived. He's uh, only five months old. Um, and so there's a war going on, really. Mm. And, Jonathan, does it look like there's any chance that the airstrikes might come to an end anytime soon? What are we hearing about that from the Israeli government? It doesn't really look like there's any sort of imminent end to this, um, at least judging from what the Israeli government has said so far. Israel has responded forcefully to these attacks and we will continue to respond forcefully until the security of our people is reinstated and restored. Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, said this is going to keep going. Yesterday I told those sons of darkness, the Hamas and Islamic Jihad terrorists, that their blood is forfeit. And a short while ago... We he said that we will extract a very high price from Hamas. And this is just the beginning. We'll hit them like they've never dreamed possible. Israel doesn't really show any sign of letting up, and, and nor does Hamas. But the other thing that's playing out in the background against this conflict is the political crisis that's going on in Israel. I'm confident in the resolve and determination of the people of Israel. Just as we've always done, we will weather this storm and emerge stronger than ever. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. 
The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for, please. <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on yeah, this. If, yeah, no. if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Jonathan, can you tell me about the political situation in Israel leading up to this conflict and and how it relates to the bloodshed that we're seeing now? Yes. So Israel has just held four elections in the past two years and has had this ongoing political crisis where it's just held election after election and been unable to produce a workable coalition. Netanyahu is uh, is really in the sort of political struggle of his life. He is Israel's longest serving prime minister, but he is uh, facing a criminal fraud trial and he's been desperately trying through successive elections to remain Prime Minister, which will put him in a position where he will avoid really having to face these fraud charges. I think that the escalating tensions that we've seen in Jerusalem, I mean, the Israeli government's really poor handling of that is is maybe a consequence of the fact that the government's been so distracted by the politics and the effort to try to remain in power. But now, as a result of this war, you know, Netanyahu has an opportunity to present himself as a wartime leader, as a tested wartime leader who's been in power for a long time. And so far that is really working because the opposition has basically fallen apart. So it really looks like this latest crisis has uh, helped to keep Netanyahu in power for the foreseeable future. And on the Palestinian side, there's been a, a separate political crisis going on, which is that the Palestinians were supposed to hold elections for the parliament and the president now and over the coming weeks. And the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, cancelled those elections because he was fearing that his ruling Fatah party was in disarray and were going to lose to Hamas. So those elections were cancelled and Hamas saw an opportunity really to present itself as protecting the interests of the Palestinian people. So, yes, so politics in Israel and on the Palestinian side have sort of been part of the background of this conflict. Mm, Okay. And Jonathan, what's the reaction to all of this been from the international community, from places like the US and also from our politicians here in Australia? Yeah, so it's been a real test for Joe Biden, who came to office really looking to continue America's disengagement from the Middle East and now suddenly finds himself facing 
this conflict in the Middle East. He has strongly backed Israel's right to defend itself and, you know, expressed unwavering support for Israel. But he's also urged Netanyahu to protect civilians and journalists. Interestingly, there's been you know, some small split occurring within the Democrats. We're seeing sort of a wing of the Democrats, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, issuing statements saying that Biden is not acknowledging Israeli aggression um, and avoiding uh, criticising Israeli human rights violations. So that's been what's happening really from, from America. More generally, across the international community, we're hearing calls for both sides to de-escalate. And Australia's joined in with those calls. It's expressed deep concern about the escalating violence in Israel and Gaza and the West Bank. So the United Nations Middle East envoy, Tor Venezlands, said in a tweet, leaders on all sides have to take the responsibility of de-escalation. Mm. And Jonathan, the UN report after the 2014 war in Gaza found that 1,400 Palestinian civilians and six Israelis were killed. The UN said that much of the destruction could be blamed on Israel's use of weaponry. So how much should that that difference in resources and weaponry and, and the uneven death toll be taken into consideration when you hear these calls for de-escalation on both sides? Well, I think the you know, we've seen from previous conflicts between Israel and Hamas uh, what happens and we're seeing the same pattern emerge this time, which is, you know, yes, Israel has much more sophisticated weaponry and its attacks on Gaza lead to enormous loss of life. And, you know, I think the deeper problem is that beyond this conflict, there needs to be some broader diplomatic and political process to try to address these tensions and to address this conflict. And, you know, we just haven't seen any sign of that for a long time. Netanyahu hasn't really had, it seems, any sort of strategy to try to resolve the conflict. Um, His strategy is to pursue the status quo, which has made life very difficult for the Palestinians on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza and, you know, has has involved uh, continued uh, Israeli settlement building but without any diplomatic process, diplomatic talks. And it's now been more than 50 years since the Six-Day War when East Jerusalem became occupied. There is still no Palestinian state. Palestinians remain under occupation. A recent Human Rights Watch report said that what was going on in certain areas amounted to the crimes of apartheid and persecution. To what extent is that underlying what we're seeing now? Uh, There are drones everywhere, actually. Can you hear it now? And and bombing, artillery shells. Well, I think life is difficult for many Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza. Uh, Yesterday they have bombed a building where uh, two of the main uh, internet distributors were. So um, 
yeah, uh, we're now threatened with complete cut of internet. The Palestinians inside Israel, I think, have long complained of discrimination, uh, of lack of public funding and government funding for their communities. And so we're seeing an expression of that. It's not only internet, but also electricity. We have only four out of 24 hours of the day of electricity. I think that the underlying conditions for the Palestinians and the need to find some way that the restrictions on Palestinian life in the West Bank and Gaza can end and that the Palestinians can achieve independence or statehood or sovereignty or some sort of uh, more hopeful future, I think is definitely adding to the, the tensions that have led to this conflict. We're talking here about a 73-year uh, occupation against Palestinians where Palestinians were oppressed for years, uh, uh, were uh, under uh, uh, oppression and excessive force. There needs to be some sort of forward-looking political and diplomatic process, but efforts to do that in the past have failed and, uh, unfortunately, there's not great hope that any sort of process is going to succeed now. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Ruby. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Also in the news today, the chief executive of Virgin Australia has called for the country's borders to be reopened before the stated goal of mid-2022, even if it leads to some people dying. The airline boss said as long as vaccination levels were high enough, the country should take the risk of fully opening again. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.